can listen to that and sit still, uh, you have a problem. <laughs> that is the latest creation from the City Champs, the Luna 68 album. The City Champs organ trio uh, actually has provided the intro and outro music to the Clemson Dubcast since it started back in August of 2018. George Sluppock is the drummer for the Memphis-based band, and he is our interview subject for today. Off the beaten sports path, of course, but we're known to do that every every now and then here, particularly when it involves music-related stuff. Those of you at TigerIllustrated.com know that on the message board, uh, frequent conversations about various musical styles and such, including most recently a long thread on the song Kid Charlemagne by Steely Dan uh, and the bass player, various bass interpretations of it, which became various drum interpretations of it. So really cool stuff. Yet another reason to join TigerIllustrated.com with my friend Paul Strilo and, of course, publisher Chris Art. Title sponsor of the Dubcast since the very beginning, back in August of 2018, Parm Smith and Archenhold Law Firm in downtown Greenville. They want you to know that their office remains open and available to serve you during the COVID-19 crisis. They are also offering their clients the ability to meet via telephone or through video conferencing. Whether you have a loved one who has suffered from a car accident, defective product, a neglectful nursing home facility, or medical malpractice issue, Parm Smith and Archenhold's Greenville lawyers can provide the protection and guidance you need. Free consultations, 864-990-4581 or on the web at parhamlaw.com. That's P-A-R-H-A-M law.com. If you're in the Eastern Midlands and PD area and you're in any way interested in buying and selling a home, commercial property, land, need to consider reaching out to Uptown Realty. They're based out of Sumter and run by a friend of mine, Patrick Enzer, big Clemson guy, used to cover the Tigers in a newspaper capacity, longtime supporter of Tiger Illustrated, longtime listener to the Dubcast. The home buying process should be an enjoyable experience, so let Patrick and his staff do all the heavy lifting. All you got to do is pick up the phone and call 803-774-0435 or go to uptownrealtysc.com. Solero Communications, formerly known as Tandem Payment, is a full-service integrated electronic payments provider powered by leading-edge technology. Solero provides a wide array of merchant solutions, simplified payments. They make onboarding, taking payments, maintaining risk management and compliance, and getting support quick and easy. At Solero, they're all about helping you achieve sustainable growth as a business. Taking payments isn't the only thing your business needs. With Solero's solutions, you can manage inventory, sell products and services via social media, schedule staff, track sales, get reports, and much, much more. Find out more about Solero at solerocommerce.com. That's C-E-L-E-R-O commerce.com. Okay, to our interview with George Sluppick, professional drummer. Been listening to his music for a long time and then finally befriended him several months ago through his Patreon page, which allows him and other professional musicians to impart their knowledge and to have relationships with a lot of their fans, which is super cool stuff, which we'll get into along with a lot of other really cool stories from George about his experience with J.J. Gray and Mofro, Chris Robinson, Brotherhood, and plenty more. Here we go. Enjoy. Okay, I am honored to be joined by George Sluppick, whose drumming I have been uh, uh, worshiping, I guess, maybe <laughs> lack of a better term, for about the better part of two decades now, uh, and have, wow. have been privileged to... To actually get to know him uh, over the last several months. How you doing, man? Hey, Larry. It's just so cool to be here, man. Thank you for having me on, man. What, really? 20 years you've been listening to me? Um. So the first 
the, the way I stumbled on you was there was some newsletter. It was probably early 2000s. I forgot where I picked it up. I might have picked it up from a record store here in Clemson. I forgot what it was called. But it was the Fog City Records newsletter. And, oh, wow. And it was it was announcing the Blackwater album with Mofro. Yeah. And I I was like, that looks cool. Just the just the description <laughs> of this the description of the sound. Uh the swamp <laughs> yeah. the swampy, you know, um groovy description of it without even having heard it. I'm like, okay, I gotta get that album. And I got the album and, and it was in my rotation for years and years and years and years and years and still is. And then, yeah, it was just, I guess that's where it started. And then seeing you live, including here uh, in Clemson at the little place you remember called the joint. Um, once I saw oh, you, yeah. yeah. Once I saw you in person, I'm like, okay, that's the kind of drummer I want to be. So yeah, the better part oh, of uh, the better part of two decades. Wow, man. You know, uh, that's fantastic. You know, I owe, <clears throat> and I always tell him this every time I talk to him, uh, Dan Prosro is the owner of Fox City Records. <clears throat> he's been in he's been in New Orleans now since I think about maybe twenty twelve or twenty thirteen or something like that. He sold his house in San Francisco where he had been um for a long time. I think he's originally from like Kenny Bunkport or something. He's from he's from uh He's from like Maine or somewhere out there. Um, <clears throat> but, uh, you know, yeah, that label Fox City Records. And it's, it's so funny how <clears throat> from my career, <clears throat> excuse me, I just had some chili a minute ago, man. And, uh, <clears throat> my, my, uh, I had a, I had a grilled cheese, ham, ham and cheese sandwich with, the, with this chili, man. I think I'm a little bit lactose. <laughs> So, uh, so I'm clearing my throat a bunch, you know, I think it might be because from, from the cheese that was in the chili and on the sandwich, <clears throat> it had a little bit of overload. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but man, Dan is, Dan is an interesting guy, man. And when, when, uh, he, you know, I first met him, he was, he signed Robert Walter and uh, Robert Walter's 20th Congress. And I was playing drums for Robert Walter and, um, we did a, <clears throat> we did a record with Robert uh, on Fog City called Money Shot. He actually had Stanton Moore play drums, and uh, and it was weird because I had just gotten in Robert's band, but he had already booked the session to do the record with with uh, Stanton Moore. Um, but they brought me in to play percussion on on a song, you know, at the very end, just kind of me pat on the back. But I was already touring with Robert uh, when they did that record with Stanton, and. Um, but then shortly after that, <clears throat> Dan Prother signed Fog City, or signed uh, most part of Fog City. And the story I heard was that they spent a week in the studio with some drummer that they had met in London. Um, there's a big, long backstory about Mofro uh, when <clears throat> they... They were they were from Florida, but they lived in London for a few years and um, were working with a label out in London. Um, but then, you know, they got tired of being in London. They wanted to come back to the States. They found Fox City Records. Dan Prosso heard their music. 
and was like, I want you guys on my label. So they moved back to the States, got signed to Fox City. <clears throat> but they brought this guy over to play drums that they had been playing with in London. And he was, uh, his name is Simi B. <clears throat> and he's actually on two of the songs on Blackwater. He's on uh, Joke House <clears throat> and um, one other tune. It's been years since I've heard that record, but anyway, he's on two of the songs. You can see it in the credits. But uh, it was the only two songs. I have a week in the studio. They were, they were the only two songs <clears throat> that that were usable from the session with Simi because he was coming from coming from like a drum and bass kind of background, you know? And Mofro, if you're a fan of Mofro, you know that this stuff is kind of down-tempo, it's real swampy, real groovy. You know, it's like Tony Joe White meets Otis Redding kind of stuff. And Simi had no relation to to that style of music, you know, to any like country swamp or anything like that. So they, uh, they, they, they wrapped after about a week with Simi and they were like, I don't know if we got anything usable in that, but we, we don't have an album. I know that. And so Dan heard me playing with Robert Walter and he approached me and said, I just signed this band Mofo. We were just a week in the studio with this guy, Simi and, it didn't work out, and um, we're wondering if we could hire you to uh, to do this record because you know we've already spent a bunch of money, but we got to do this record. <clears throat> so strangely enough, I was on the road with Robert Walter at the time, and we did a show in Gainesville at a place called Sidebar, and uh, JJ Gray and Daryl Hance came out to that gig. And and we're sitting on the side of the stage watching us play the whole gig, and I had a feeling it was them because they they didn't look like anybody else in the crowd. You know, they were camouflage hats, and you know they just they were definitely like really eyeballing the band and me in particular. And so we we went on set break. They came up and introduced themselves, and I was I was just really humble, humble guys and just like the nicest dudes. <clears throat> Uh, fast forward about, um, I don't know, two weeks or something like that, flew down to uh, St. Augustine and cut that record with them, that that that, that Blackwater record. And um, they ended up using two of the tracks that Timmy had played on and they, they, they put on their record. Oh, Nair Sugar was the other one. Junk House and Nair Sugar. Those okay. are both Timmy on, on, on drums. Um, but, uh, man, well, that record came out and it was on NPR's, um, um, Terry Gross or somebody, uh, do like a little segment or something on, on, on Mofro. And, um, and the band like took off and like, you know, I left, I ended up leaving Robert Walters' band. I joined up with Mofro and, uh, played with him for a good while. But it was so funny because like meeting Dan, Meeting Dan Prospero, like, like things really took off for me, you know, like being associated with that level. I met with that label. I met so many great people. Papa Mally, I played on a Papa Mally record. And, uh, um, you know, of course, just, you know, all the, all the wonderful people, Charlie Hunter. My, my relationship with Charlie Hunter was, was through my association with Robert Walter because we were signed to, 
the Dan's label. So anyway, I'm kind of talking a lot, but man, I, I love, I love Dan. Like every time I talk to him, I said, man, you know, I'm glad I know you, bro. Cause I've met a lot of people through you. <laughs> mm. Um, and I probably, I guess, given that this is a sports <laughs> related podcast, sports centric podcast, mm. I'm going to have to put yeah, some, yeah. I'm going to put some stuff in a layman's term since it's not like a, I don't, you know, um, I don't want to get too, I mean, I do want to get into the weeds, but I want to explain when we do, when you say that previous drummer was drum from more of a drums and bass background, that was just more straight ahead, not really swung, like, um, not really funky, I guess. Is that, is that a good way to, so drum, drum and drum and bass is a style, right? So when you think of funk drumming, you know, you think of like, you know, the guys that played with like James Brown or, you know, uh, the music that came out of Memphis, you know, in the 60s and 70s, you know, Isaac Hayes and Stax, you know, uh, or or like like Aretha Franklin, you know, or um, Otis Redding, you know, that kind of stuff. It's like super funky or Parliament Funkadelic, but... Um, in the 90s, I guess it was sometime in the 90s, a style developed, was developed called, that they called drum and bass. And it's, uh, it's like really super percussive. Um, it's very syncopated, but it's also usually like really fast. You know, it's like, mm-hmm. <laughs> You know, and it was like a million bands that came out that had this really fast drumming, and this 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 guy CMG that they that they that they played with had had uh you know had this had this drum and bass kind of style. So he was he was approaching their stuff, you know, from that from that background, and he wasn't even really that good. It was very good at that. <laughs> But, uh, you know, when they tried to get him to, you know, half that down and, and, and slow it down and play it like half that tempo, he just, like, he just couldn't do it, you know. So that's, that's, that's how I got the gig with uh, with Morfro, and then I ended up joining the band, you know, not long after we made the record together. I remember when you guys played, I'm always fascinated, like, uh, not just by the music on the stage, uh, maybe more so fascinated by the life that the bands lead when they're off the stage. And I remember, I remember going and peeking outside. I guess maybe after the show and seeing a Winnebago sitting beside the right beside the joint. And uh, I'm just like, and you mentioned you guys, you guys became uh, very. Uh, you got you got a big boost from the NPR mention and segment, and so you guys. I don't want to say made it, but you guys were successful and, you know, but I'm not sure the average person really understands even for the bands that are successful touring bands, it's still rough. Um, in, in most cases, and I'm guessing in the case of, have, of riding around in a Winnebago back in, I guess, like 2005, 2006, what, uh, what, what's that like? Man, it, it was, <clears throat> It was really tough. Um, at first, you know, you're like, "Oh wow, we're going on, <clears throat> we're, we're we're going camping," 
<laughs> and at the, at the end of the day, we get to play music together. And then we get back in the RV and, and we go camping again to the next town. Uh, we, you know, we would stay at, at, at um, uh, what are those, uh, what are those camping sites that they have all over the country? Um, I forget what they're called. It's, just, it's a famous company that Not has sure. campsites. Y'all you know, would like break out tents and stuff? Uh, no, we didn't have tents. No, we would sleep in the RV. I mean, it was a 40 foot, oh, wow. 42 foot RV. I mean, it was, it was pretty big. I remember like, I, I remember JJ like buying that thing and he, he spent a, he spent a good amount of money on it, on it. And, um, he really cleaned it up. You know, he's a real handy, handy guy, you know, um, he and uh, he and Daryl got in there and, and really dialed it in. So I mean, it was pretty nice. It had a nice diesel engine, and, and uh, but man, you know that that uh, that RV and traveling around and sleeping in campsites, you know, in an RV, you know, and every once in a while we would get a hotel room so that everybody could take showers, you know. So you're taking a shower every, you know two or three days, you know, maybe sometimes longer. And, uh, you know, if, if we, we, we were, we would hope that we, we always hoped that the venues that we were playing at had a shower, you know, some venues have showers, you know, like if we, if we were at the, uh, like the knitting factory in Los Angeles, for example, uh, when it was there, you know, they have a shower, you know, or if you get to uh, house of blues, or something, uh, uh, you know, they, they're going to have a shower in the dressing room, you know, so, you know, gigs like that were like, <clears throat> really, really, uh, we really looked forward to places like that because <clears throat> the catering would be good. And, you know, we had a, we had a bunch of stuff on, a, on our contract stating what, what the things that we would like to have backstage for us catering, you know, whatever was left over at the end of the gig, you know, when we were packing our stuff up, man, everything went onto the, <laughs> uh, onto the RV. <laughs> so we filled up the refrigerator with, you know, with booze and <laughs> with <laughs> chips and, and salsas and drinks and hummus and pita and, you know, cause man, you know, we, we would, we would just do amazing, crazy drives. Like, I remember we had this, uh, we had this booking agent. I'm not going to call him out because you know he might he might get upset if he hears this. <laughs> I remember we had this booking agent, and you know a tour if you're out for say 28 days straight or something, you know, um, you might have to drive from Albuquerque to Nashville, and there might not be a gig in between. You know, and if you look on the map, Albuquerque and Nashville is a long way. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Yeah. <clears throat> but then after the Nashville gig, you might have to go and play up in New York. And there might not be a gig in between Nashville and New York. You just got to drive your ass up there. <laughs> so, and then you got to go, you know, and, and you would hope that the tour manager, you know, or the, uh, the, uh, uh, sorry, the, the booking agent, when they're, when they're booking these tours, you would hope that they would string along so that you're not, uh, so you're not crisscrossing, 
around the United States. You know, at, at one point we used to call them the Star David tours, where you know you're going out Albuquerque to Nashville, to New York, down to Texas, and back up to Chicago. <laughs> <laughs> and there were definitely tours like that. You know, that it just happened that that's how the routing was. You know, generally, generally they would they would you know try to string the dates together. You know. In a, in a in in a more you know practical way, but there were definitely some that were pretty wild, and one in particular, we had to drive from Texas, like Austin, Texas, to Colorado, without a gig in between, and you know that's a couple of days to get from Austin, Texas, to say Boulder, Colorado, <clears throat> and you got to drive through some desert. And on our way to Colorado, <clears throat> the it was summertime, and the air conditioner went out oh. in the RV. <laughs> and there's five of us <laughs> on this RV, and we're all wearing shorts and tank tops, and we're sweating. We've got the windows open. <laughs> we're driving across the country. Man, we did some we did some crazy stuff. So near near accidents and you know flat tires on on the side of the road next to a river and uh, you know um, and just I have so many so many crazy stories. So in the Mofer days, did you have a crew or was it just y'all? We didn't have a crew um, at all. When, when when I came into the band, yeah, no, when I came into the band, we had, um, it was me and J.J. Darrell and Adam Scone. <clears throat> it was just the four of us in J.J.'s RV. And then we hired a guy from Boulder um, named Chris Luki to run sound. And, uh, and, uh, and he, he was a, he was a sound guy and, um, he did, he did, uh, he, he ran the, the sound at the board <clears throat> and, but he also, um, uh, tour managed and a tour manager's job basically is to handle most of the logistics while you're on the road. So, um, the advancing of shows, for example, it's called advancing the show. So say, you know, it's Monday, but on Thursday night, we're going to be, you know, Monday we're in, um, Tulsa, but on, you know, Thursday, we're going to be in Forest city, Arkansas, you know, or something or Fayetteville, Arkansas or something like that. So Chris's job is to call the club in Fayetteville on Monday and say, Hey, you know, this is Chris, uh, tour manager with JJ Gray. And, you know, we're playing George's majestic theater in Fayetteville on Thursday. He's like, Oh yeah, man, I'm really looking forward to seeing you guys. You know, it's like, well, I just want to, you know, I just want to go over, you know, some of the stage plot and in the back line, you know, they have this, all this, you know, they have a, all this terminology that they, you know, they, that, that they, you know, you have to know, you know, uh, to get this job done. So it's like the tour manager is just overwhelmed with stuff that they have to remember. 
every single gig. You know what I mean? <clears throat> so, and he was doing that. Plus, he was running sound for the band. So that was, that's 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 a really big job. So, what's the? Is there a clear sort of dividing line between the band that? like Mofro that is successful, but still sort of, you know, roughing it. Um, and you're having to set up and break down your, your own drums every night versus another band you've been in, you know, Chris Robinson brotherhood that has a, you know, a nice bus. Um, and I guess a, a, a crew is, is there, what separates, is there a clear sort of line that, that, that is definable? Like, okay, we need to get to this level where we can, where we can sort of graduate to this big bus and actually having a crew, or is it kind of murky? Um, it depends, man. To be honest, for the five years that I played with Chris Robinson, I set up and broke down my drums the entire time. No oh, one wow. ever did it for me. Okay. No one ever did it for me. Um, unless it was one of those gigs where where backline was provided. So backline is is what they call stage equipment and um, if backline was provided saying like you know if uh, say like we had a you know like we would have these fly-in dates where the band would would get on a plane and fly to you know fly out to you know Colorado or New York or wherever and the, the musical equipment was already there on the stage set up and there was a crew of people there waiting to help you with anything that you needed. There were definitely times like that, you know, where I would show up, walk up to the stage at a festival or something, and there'd be a drum kit on there. And at that point, you know, I just used my own snare drum and cymbals, you know, so I'd sit up there and, you know, and, and adjust the drums that they provided for me and, you know, adjust them to, to, to fit me. But for the, but the rest of the remainder of the time that I was in his band, um, we set up and, and broke down every time. And uh, we started out in a van, and within a couple of months, we were on a bus. And uh, and then we stayed on a bus for, for the rest of the time. But there were, there were tours where it was like, hey, you know, we're only going to go out for 10 days on this run, and we're not going to rent a bus. We're going to get a big, giant Sprinter van. You know, is everybody cool with that? You know, like, well, yeah, of course, you know. Uh, but we, the only crew we had when I was with Chris Robinson was a tour manager and a uh, a guy that was like our, almost like our Renaissance man. He did, he handled, uh, he handled merch. Uh, he handled all of our merchandise, so sell, buying and uh, you know, selling uh, T-shirts and stuff at the merch table at the shows. Um, but he also recorded all of our shows and then edited all the shows and and uh, loaded them onto uh, this website where people could go and and buy the show that they had just you know they had just seen like two nights earlier, you know. So that that was really cool. His name was also Chris Chris Albers, really really good dude. Uh, so it was like Chris and Brian. That was that was our crew. And then whoever was driving the bus. So we had two crew guys and then the five guys in the band. So there's there's seven of us the whole time I was in Chris's band. That was and we never had a sound man. We always used <clears throat> whoever was at the venues that we were playing at, you know. 
So the next level up from that would be like, like, uh, like Derek, like, like, uh, Derek and Susan, you yep. know, Tedeschi trucks band. Now they have at least one bus, sometimes two buses, but they have, they have a couple of semis that have, you know, all the stage gear and everything. And they don't have to set up or break down any of their own gear unless they want to. Cause at that point they've got, they've got two buses. So they've got, you know, they actually might have three buses. Derek and Susan are on a bus with their kids. And then the band bus with all the guys in the band. Cause they got like 10 or 12 people in that band. Right. Yeah. And then they got the, then they got the crew bus. So they have all their stage hands and their lighting guy and their monitor guy or girl, or whatever. And then, and then, and then their sound man, you know, and, uh, and then a couple of semis worth of gear, <clears throat> you know? Um, so that's the next level from like where, where Chris Robinson was at when I was in his band, Chris Robinson brotherhood, you know, that was the level that we wanted to get to. And we did shows with Derek and Susan and it was, it was always pretty obvious, like what was going on. Cause our bus would pull up and we didn't have a trailer. All of our gear fit underneath the bus. So we're a normal tour bus, you know, as a trailer, we were get we were, we put all of our gear, we did it ourselves, man. I loaded and unloaded my drums and everybody's gear, all the speakers and amps and, and cable boxes and everything. Uh, uh, I loaded them and unloaded them every night underneath the, the luggage bays of our tour buses. Wow. <clears throat> it was a lot of work. So, you know, you, 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 you get to the venue in usually in the afternoon and you've been driving all night long, you know, a bus driver, uh, the bus, the bus driver has the hardest life actually because the bus driver sleeps during the day and then drives at night. So when the performance is over, you've packed up all the gear, then you get on the bus. It's, you know, it's anywhere between 1am and 3am, you know, right. So you get on the bus and then, you know, you're excited because, you know, you've been working all day long or whatever. And then there's a party, you know, and on Christmas bus, there was a party every <laughs> single night. I swear to God. Until, until he, the party would go until he passed out, which is usually about 6 a.m., somewhere between 5 and 6. And I, I, I usually was so exhausted that I would go straight to my bunk. And, and put my headphones on and close the curtain and try to get as much sleep as possible because it's, it's, it's physically exhausting on your body, um, in, in, in so many ways. But, uh, uh, I, I you know, you go, to, you go to sleep and, and you're in your bunk, you know, 3 a.m. or whatever, 2 a.m. And then the bus driver checks out of his hotel, usually around six and gets on the bus and starts to drive. Now the bus is parked at the venue, right? So the bus driver gets on the, on the, on the bus and then drives through the drives through the through the morning. Uh, your 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 best days are when the gigs are like maybe 3 or 4 hours. Uh, the cities are like three or four hours apart. The ones that are really hard is like when you've got like 12 or 14 hours to drive, you know, those are, those are really, those are really tough, uh, tough days. <clears throat> um, but 
you know, the bus, the bus drives, the bus driver drives to the next gig, you know, next town or whatever, and goes straight to the venue, whatever, the, 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 the club or the theater or the shed or the costume or wherever it is or whatever town and parks backstage. And then, uh, you always have a hotel room for your bus driver, which is another thing that the tour manager has to set up, you know, days in advance. So then, you know, the bus driver gets off the bus. You have a car waiting for the bus driver. That's another thing that you have to, that's another piece of the logistic, uh, you get a car or a taxi or an Uber or something like that to take the bus driver to their hotel. And then they go to sleep. So it's like, you know, probably, yeah, at 10 o'clock in the morning to 1 o'clock in the afternoon or whatever. The bus driver <clears throat> goes to the hotel and goes to sleep. And they sleep all day long. Meanwhile, drives on the bus. We wake up. We have our morning or afternoon or whatever. <laughs> go get some food. Go try to find some coffee. Try to visit whatever city you're in for however many hours that you can before you have to, you know, go 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 load in your gear, you know, which is usually about usually about three o'clock in the afternoon, three or three thirty, between three and four is uh, is your load in time. <clears throat> and you know, at that point then, you know, unload all the gear, you bring it into the venue, you set it all up, and then the sound man puts all the microphones and, and uh, tests all the gear, you know, where they're like, check one, check one, check two, check one, one, two, three, you know, they do all that for several hours. And then usually around five o'clock or six o'clock, then all the band assembles on the stage and you do a sound check. Now with Chris's band, Chris liked to basically play an entire show at sound check. Because, <laughs> <laughs> no uh, you know, I'm just going to tell you, he was stoned out of his mind. <laughs> for, for the majority of so you know he's just like oh yeah man it sounds really good man let's just keep playing but like, well we played for two hours already and in three hours they're going to open doors and this place is going to be full of people and we're going to have to play a three hour show so how about we just like uh, everybody <laughs> you just let all of us go to a hotel and, and take a nap for the next few hours before we oh my gosh man is it you know, I could never say that to him because he's the leader of the band and he's signing my paychecks. So, you know, I just kind of, when you're there, you just have to deal with whatever's going on, you know. At Harris Home and Harris Commercial, they want you to get every detail right. Harris means beautiful design that delivers taste, style, and comfort. It's a legacy of integrity built by generations of outstanding reliability and service. It's all about creating just the right look, the perfect feel, and dependable function for every room in your home or any business setting. Folks at Harris are Clemson people based in Anderson. A lot of Clemson University's recent facilities improvements have Harris's fingerprints all over them. For endless flooring possibilities and breathtaking renovation, the only name you need to know is Harris. Website is discoverharris.com. Want to share a quick word about Founders Federal Credit Union? If you've been to a sporting event in Clemson, you've probably heard about Founders already. They are the official credit union partner of the Clemson Tigers. In addition to that, all Clemson faculty, staff, and students are eligible for membership as well as IPTA members. Matt Gross is a proud Clemson alum and the vice president for the Clemson market for Founders Federal Credit Union. Matt's office is located beside the Walmart neighborhood market on Old Greenville Highway in Clemson. 
Simpson. For more information, go to foundersfcu.com. Another loyal supporter of the Dubcast is Blackacre Law Firm in Greenville, a subsidiary of Parham Smith and Archenthold. Blackacre helps South Carolina residents achieve their dreams of home ownership by providing experienced professional representation for real estate closings. Attention to detail is crucial in real estate law. Blackacre is committed to making sure nothing gets by them preparing residential or commercial closings. Blackacre also offers estate planning services for their clients in the Greenville area. Find out more about Blackacre at 864-326-3507. On your recommendation, I read the fantastic book by Steve Gorman, the Black Crow's former drummer, called Hard to oh Handle. Oh, my God. The life, and, <laughs> the life and Death of the Black Crows. One of the best uh, rock band memoirs ever. I'm curious. I agree. Go ahead. You agree? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I'm curious what, okay, how did you uh, get into CRB, and then what, what was your notion of him going in and then how, if, if it did, how did it change during the, during your, your tenure in the band? Like, uh, which I don't know was how long? Um, five years, five years. Yeah. Almost. Yeah. From, uh, March of 2011 until, um, until January of 2015. So I guess that's four years. Four years. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, I, I listened to the Black Crows when I was, you know, I think I first heard the Black Crows when I was 23. Uh, I had just moved out west from Memphis, uh, 1991. And I worked at this coffee shop who, uh, the, the, the owner of the coffee shop was a Crows fan and he had a bunch of CDs. And I remember we had both, um, chicken money maker and the Southern harmony records, uh, on CD at the cafe. And it was just great music to listen to while you were pouring coffee for people, you know, and I had long hair and I just moved out to California from, from Memphis, you know, and, uh, I thought they were fantastic. I definitely related to the, uh, their music. I thought it was, uh, I, I, I thought it was great. I thought Chris had a really great voice. Um, I didn't like some of the stories that would come out about him as a person some of the things that he did to people, you know, I know he's, he, uh, there's a classic story about him spitting a loogie into a, a, a young cashier's girl's face for not serving and not selling him beer after two o'clock or three o'clock or whatever the curfew was. And, uh, he's like, you know, Chris Robinson, don't you know who I am? She's like, I know who you are, but I can't tell this to you. That was a big story that came out in the nineties about him. And, you know, it was all over the news, you know, he spit in somebody's face and later on, you know, he apologized or whatever, but still it's just like, well, what kind of person does that? You know? So that was like, so I would hear stories about, you know, things things like things like that about him but we met uh actually when i was playing with mofro we opened for the black crows um in columbus ohio and immediately they were assholes to us (laughs) (laughs) 
And I was like, oh, okay. So all these things that people say about him are kind of true. He's not a nice guy. And, uh, and we had our show and it was, it, our show was, was really good. But when, you know, when you're playing, when you're the opening band in front of the black crows, probably the majority of the crowd is there to see the black crows. And if you're not the black crows, they're not going to like you most likely. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, you know, we're playing this super funky, swampy stuff from Florida, you know, and uh, uh, as good as Mofo was, it wasn't the Black Rose. So, you know, their fans weren't really too crazy about us. Um, but that being said, we ended up opening for them uh, several other times. And at least one of the times was at a festival, and I remember looking over at the, um, on the side of the stage while we were performing, and I see Chris and Rich Robinson standing there watching me play. And I was like, oh, that's really cool. The Crows guys are just standing here watching me play. That's nice. So fast forward to um, 2010, um, I'm living back in Memphis and I've got an organ trio called the city champs and we are on the road touring with the North Mississippi all-stars, which the guitarists for them, Luther Dickinson, uh, had been touring as the guitarist in the black crows. Mm -hmm. Right. So <clears throat> Luther is a big fan of the city champs. He brought us out on tour with him uh, and his band, and uh, we did a couple of months with those guys. When that tour ended, um, he was getting ready to go back out on the road with the Black Crows, and he told me that he was going to give Chris Robinson a copy of the City Chance record because this was going to be the last Crows tour, and then Chris was starting a new band in L.A. And for some reason was having difficulty finding a drummer to play shuffles. <laughs> <laughs> and he, uh, to his credit, Luther gave Chris uh, a copy of the chance record. And then two weeks later, my phone rang and it was Chris Robinson. He said, Hey man, this is Chris. Uh, didn't you used to play drums for Mofro? And I said, yeah. And he goes, I remember, watching you play and I go, yeah, man, I remember meeting you. We opened for you guys. We opened for them, uh, at a couple of festivals, one time in Australia. Uh, we did a few shows with them and, and, <clears throat> and he said, he, he said he remembered me and he wanted to bring me out to Los Angeles to try out for his new band, the Chris Robinson Brotherhood. Well, my brotherhood is your brother in the band. <laughs> he's, like, he's like, he's like, ah, fuck my brother. I hate my brother. And I was like, okay, wow. All right. So this, these rumors are true. Then all those, all these things that people are saying about, about you and your brother, you guys actually really do hate each other. And he's like, ah, I can't stand my brother. And I was like, wow. Wow. Now, you know, hindsight is 2020, man. I, you know, I, I, I learned a lot in that band. I learned how important it is to never lose sight of, you know, your humanity and, and how 
how these, these, these bands wouldn't be anything without the fans. You know, and like people traveled all over the country to come and see Chris Robinson's band. We had these fans were just fanatics for this band. You know, they loved Chris, but then we, you know, we had our own thing. It didn't sound like the Black Crowns. It was it was its own thing. You know, it was groovy, it was funky, and um, I've seen people would come up to me on the show and say, hey, you know, I live 500 miles away. I came to see you guys because you weren't going to play anywhere near my town. And, you know, I love your band. And, and uh, you know, can I get a photograph? Can I get an autograph or whatever? And nine times out of ten, Chris would be on the bus, you know, not out there signing autographs with people. And I'd be like, hey, man, this guy's been waiting all night long to get an autograph and he's been standing outside near the bus for three hours after the show. You know, can you just sign his poster? He's been a fan of yours for 30 years. Fuck that guy. Wow. <laughs> wow, man. Yeah, man. I'm not going to lie to you, man. He's, he's not a nice person. I guess, I guess I shouldn't say, wow, having read that book because after reading the book, <laughs> the reaction is, yep, that sounds exactly like what Steve Gorman described through every, almost every page of that book. Yeah, he's, he's, he's not a nice guy, man. <clears throat> and there's no, and no one really understands like why he isn't a nice guy. You know, I mean, he's had everything handed to him pretty much his whole life, you know? I mean... I don't know. Old rotten, I guess. So how did the end? How did the end come with with CRB and you? Uh, the the end was very strange, man. Uh, I won't go into everything, but I'll just tell you this: that um, we, we the, the, I guess there there came a period um, about three years in where um well well we we did we did one full year of touring right in twenty eleven um and then uh well close to a full year anyway we started in we started in march of of, of twenty eleven and then we ended in in january or sorry we ended in in late december uh, but then in early January we hit we hit the studio and recorded uh, recorded those first two records. Uh, so really we were busy from January 2011 until, uh, or sorry March 2011 until January 2012. In uh, February or March of 2012, the Black Crows got back together for their very last tour. It was like a reunion tour. We're getting the band back together, kind of, kind of thing. And uh, um, they made a lot of money. Well, when he came back to the CRB after, you know, <clears throat> making all that money with the crows and realizing, you know, man, CRB is not making some money that we're making them with the crows, we're going to have to uh, ramp things up a little bit. So ramping things up meant 
that I was going to have to start hitting the drums harder and we were going to have to start covering Black Crow songs in the CRB, which was like this, you know, um, well, you've heard the band. Yeah, it's like a, fin- it was a finesse, finesse touch, sort of. Well, yeah. Well, when I first joined the band, he told me that he didn't want me to play any rock yeah. at all. You know, because I remember in our first rehearsals together, we were playing some song, and I played a drum fill, you know, like, you know, and he was like, he stopped the band. He goes, hey, man, don't play any rock. I don't want to hear any of that shit. I don't hear any <laughs> Black Crows shit in this band. I want you to play that swinging, shuffly, funky Memphis thing that you do. And I was like, oh, okay, cool. Then I don't have to be a rock drummer in this band. I can be... I'm at the soul drum, which is what I, which is what he said he wanted, which is what I wanted to do anyway. So for that first year, that's what I was doing. And then when he came back from the Crows tour, um, at the end of, uh, well, I need to back up here. I think we toured actually from 2011 until the end of 2012. That's right. And then in 2013, that's when the Crows got back together for their last tour. So, yeah, 11 and 12, we were on the road. And then 13, he got back together with the Crows. And then came back at the beginning of 14, having had a year of playing with them, and was like, uh, we got to ramp it up. I need you to hit the drums really, really hard. And he started yelling at me on stage. Like, there'd be a thousand people at a festival, and he's turning around, and he's cussing me out. What? on stage because he wants me to hit the drums hard <clears throat> and he's hard of hearing so <laughs> I should hit the drums as hard as I can and he's having trouble hearing me because his amps are really really loud or on the stage in front of a thousand people or whatever uh, and he's still having trouble hearing me but to be honest I mean you're talking about Steve Gorman Steve Gorman and I hit the drums completely different from one another Steve grew up in the Black Crows and learned how to hit the drums really, really hard because they were playing in front of 50,000 people on a regular basis. You know? Yeah. I've only played in front of 50,000 people a couple of times in my life. When you do it for like 20, 30 years, you know, you learn how to hit the drums a different way, you know? I never played like that. You know, I was always, always finessing kind of jazz in the drums. And uh, so we started getting into these arguments. We're really just like one-sided. Chris was just yelling at me backstage after the gigs, and I was just standing there looking at him like, I have no idea why you're so angry right now. Um, so that was the beginning of it, you know. In 2014, things started getting weird with me and him. And um, he just got real angry you know, with how I was playing the drums. And when he decides that he doesn't like a person, that's it. They're just, they're, they're, they're out. He stopped talking to me. We would play entire shows where, you know, he didn't even turn around and look at me once. Jeez. And, uh, so for, for a lot of 2014, it was pretty miserable. I want to um, go ahead. Sorry. Yeah, no. Go nope, ahead. nope. You go ahead. <laughs> you you were still in in mid thought. Well, I mean, I, you know, you're asking how it ended. You know, um, I think he just 
wasn't happy with how I was playing, you know, even though we had had like two solid years of, of really great gigs. Um, I think he was just so fucked up in his own mind, you know, about what was going on with the Black Crows that, you know, he was trying to get the CRB to sound more like that, but still have it be its own thing, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> that it just wasn't working for me. And, it, you know, I think that my attitude probably, you know, I, I probably started to feel, uh, well, I know, I, I started to feel like an outsider. You know, because I'd get on the bus and those guys would be partying and having a great time and I'd just go into my bunk and close the curtains and go to sleep. You know, wake up the next day and do it all over again. Well, the other thing, too, was, and this was kind of a big deal to him, I got sober. Mm -hmm. And when you're on Chris Robinson's bus, it's a party and everybody's there. And if you're not... If you're not partaking, he's upset by that. (laughs) (laughs) Unbelievable. It's unbelievable, man. I'm telling you, and, uh, you know, I'm I'm being completely candid with you. Um, Yeah, I got sober. And uh, he he didn't like that. Because, you know, I think maybe he feels like I'm judging him or something like that. I don't really care what he does. You know, uh, but yeah, that was, that was, that was another, that was another part of our, uh, relationship ending was me, uh, not being at the same party, you know? So while most friends would be like, man, good for you, you know, keep it up, stay strong. He's pissed. Yeah. And it's really kind of funny, you know, cause there was a moment when he was married to Kate Hudson where she was like, Hey, you know, um, I'm not going to take this from you. You're going to have to straighten up. And he straightened up. He went clean and he was just like, yeah, fuck drugs. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm sober now. He cut his hair off, you know, and tried to be the sober guy while he was Kate. Mm-hmm. And of course they broke up and he was just like, you know, back to doing his regular thing again. But you can't, bro, you would never be able to bring that up with him. Oh, what about the times that you were so, he would have something <laughs> terrible to say to you about that. <laughs> <laughs> What a piece of work. Oh, my gosh. He's a, yeah, he's a piece of work, man. And, you know, what's so funny is that, you know, I I liked him. You know, he's incredibly charming. You know, a lot of my friends and family met him. They're like, God, Chris Robinson's the sweetest guy ever. I'm like, yeah, we'll see him in the morning when he first wakes up. See if you like him then. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. So... I want to. Yeah, wanna... he called me on the phone in, in January of 2015. We had just done a week long run in the mountains uh, over New Year's. And had you know, great shows. It was really cold, but like we sold out all these shows. We did a couple of festivals. And I knew something was weird because he kind of stopped talking to me like back in October and November. But in December, when we did this week together in the mountains, he was all hugs and like, hey, bro, good to see you, man. I bought him a Christmas present. He's, he's into vinyl. So I bought him this album from this band called Gong. And uh, it was a weird band from the 70s. And uh, he freaked out because I knew it was a record he had been looking for for a long time. And I found a copy of it for 80 bucks. And I wrapped it up and gave it to him. 
in Denver on you know, New Year's Eve, and I was like, hey, man, I lost a birthday Christmas present. And his birthday's in December, too, you know, so it was like Christmas, birthday kind of present. And, um, and he was really excited to hug me, and that was good to see you, man. I love you, man. You know, so I left. And then the shows were phenomenal. And then I remember January 9th, I got home on the 5th, and uh, he called me four days later. He's like, hey, man, uh, it's been a great run, bro, but we're going to move on, man. We're going to let you go. And I was just like, cool, man. Well, uh, that sounds good. Uh, do you mind uh, if I ask why? And he's like, you know why. Oh, <laughs> and I was like, okay, man. Well, good luck to y'all. And he hired uh, he hired my buddy Tony Tony Leone to uh, come and replace me. And they basically just went back to playing the same exact venues that they were playing when I was in the band. So I mean, nothing ever really big, nothing big ever really happened for them, you know. Yeah. And then of course, you know, they ended and then poor Neil committed suicide. Like, yeah, Neil Casal. Yep. <clears throat> I want to. I want to go back to when you were 19 years old in Memphis. You had uh, you had graduated from a prestigious creative and performing arts high school, Overton, where you studied music. You studied music theory, sang second tenor in the concert choir, and played drums for their award-winning gospel choir. Um, you, you were steeped in the local music scene, and then. I'm just trying to set the stage here for your introduction to Albert King and how oh, wow. you how you, how you became the legendary Albert King as a 19-year-old and how you became his drummer at that uh at that ripe young age. Man, um my dad was a bass player and um uh, a very active member in the in the local Memphis music scene. He um he was a uh, uh, he was a member of the Blues Foundation, and um, you know they have the uh, in Memphis every year they have the IBC, which is called which stands for the International Blues Challenge. In the eighties, it was called the ABC, which stood for Amateur Blues Competition. But at some point, people were like, "Ah, we don't like the word amateur, so we're going to change it to international." Because there were, you know, bands, blues bands coming from all over the world to perform in this in this competition. And my dad was this stage and production manager for the well, for back then for the ABC for like nine years. <clears throat> and um, occasionally, he would ask me to come and play with a band that didn't have a drummer. And uh, I got to play with all kinds of people. And there was one year um, during, during, the, during the ABC that there was, a, there was a group of musicians who didn't have a drummer. And... They asked me to play, and I, for the life of me, I can still, to this day, can't remember who it was. But uh, the bassist that was in that band or on stage that day was Albert King's bassist, and his name is Ruben Fairfax. <clears throat> I was 
19, I was working at a local record store here called Poplar Tunes. And um, got a phone call one day while at work. And uh, I'll never forget this guy, man. He's still alive, actually. I should reach out to him. His name is Ruben Fairfax, but his nickname is Rube. And when he called me on the phone, he said, hello, and he's got a very, very like, sophisticated sounding uh, uh, speaking voice. And he says, hello, uh, is this George Slupis? And I was like, yes, it is. And he says, my name is Rube. It's a combination of my first and last name. It's R-U-E-B-A-I-X, Rube. And it's from my first name, which is Ruben, and my last name, which is Fairfax. Ruben Fairfax. My friends call me Rube. And I was like, oh, it's nice to meet you, Rube. <laughs> <laughs> and he says, I did a gig with you about six months ago at the New Lazy Theater, and I was playing bass, and you were playing drums, and you're quite good. And I was like, oh, cool. Thank you very much. He goes, I got your phone number from Mr. So-and-so, and I can't remember who gave him my phone number. He's like, I am currently playing the bass with Mr. Albert King. Do you know Albert? And I was like, well, of course, man. You know, cross-cut saw, born under a bad sign. Yes, man, of course, man. I've been listening to Albert my whole life. He's like, he's like, well, Albert's looking for a drummer, and I told him about you, and I was wondering what you're doing, you know. you know, I wonder what you're doing this, this Tuesday afternoon about 2 p.m. Would you come down to the Peabody Alley and audition for the band? And I was like, wow, of course. <laughs> <laughs> so I hung up the phone, and I remember my boss, um, uh, uh, Mr. Beretta was uh, was 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 walking by me, and I was I was like, Mr. Beretta. He's like, What's going on? I was like, Albert King's bass player just called me. I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go audition for his band on Tuesday. And I remember he put his arms around me. And he goes, It's been nice knowing you, kid. <laughs> <laughs> greatest greatest boss ever met. Such a cool dude. And I remember I I went down uh, to this. Uh, to this club it's no longer there it was adjacent to the Peabody Hotel which is this old historic hundred mm-hmm. year old hotel in Memphis and it was a club there called the Peabody Alley uh, <clears throat> where Albert played four nights a week Thursday through Sunday I think and um, brought my drums down there like two in the afternoon set them up the band showed up I didn't know I was 19 but I didn't know any of these guys is I've never seen any of these guys on Beale street ever. And I'd grow up, grew, grown up playing drums on Beale street. So I didn't know any of these guys. I didn't know who they were, but it was, they were all legends. Rube had been in Al Green's band. Wow. Yes. And, and, um, the keyboard player, Archie Mitchell was Willie Mitchell's stepson, Archie Turner Mitchell. And Jeez. then he and I, years and years later, ended up ended up playing uh, in in, uh, um, in a band called the Bo Keys uh, here here in Memphis, and, and we always tease each other about the years that we were in, uh, in Albert King's band together. Yeah, he was the keyboard player, and then there were two saxophone players I'll never forget, and I still don't remember who those guys were because they were <clears throat> phenomenal. Um, but yeah, I played with Albert for about three and a half weeks. And that, the day I auditioned for him was very, was very vivid in my memory. We, uh, we set all the gear up. Albert wasn't there. <clears throat> um, 
guys were like, Hey, you know, watermelon man. I was like, sure. So we started playing watermelon man and, uh, we got like midway through the second chorus and Albert comes walking into the club, like from the front door of the club, not from the backstage, from the front of the club. And like, like a scene out of a movie, man. Like he comes walking in and he was big. He was like six foot four, six foot five, you know, 280 pounds or something. And he sat down at a table in front of the band. And then he had a, a his, his uh, guitar tech brought his guitar over to him and then, and then plugged it into the amp that was on stage. And they ran out this 50 foot guitar table out to the, <laughs> from the audience where Albert was sitting at this table hands him his flying uh, Gibson flying V that he played and he plugged it in and started jamming with us and then we we ran through a, a couple of his tunes and then he handed his guitar back to his tech and he he goes he called me drummer <laughs> he knew my name was George but he never he never referred to me as George he just <laughs> called me drummer <laughs> and uh as, as I was to find out later that I, that I was the fifth drummer he had gone through in two months. So <clears throat> I didn't even know that my days were numbered right away. But he, he goes, drama. And I said, yes, sir. He said, do you want the gig? <laughs> <laughs> and I said, yes, sir. He said, well, it's yours if you want it. <laughs> he said it just like oh, that. I'll never God. forget it. Not like it's yours, you know. He's like, it's yours if you want it. Like question mark. And I was like, yes, sir. I want to get it, you know. And then that was it. And then uh, uh, we played, we played Monday through, or sorry, uh, Thursday through Sunday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, four nights at the Peabody Alley. Uh, we do like the happy hour set. Uh, and then on the weekends we would fly. Uh, he had a he had a little charter. He chartered this uh, little Learjet, and we would fly to these uh, cities to do uh, gigs, like one-offs. You know, where we would fly out, do the gig, get back on the plane, and fly back to Memphis. And uh, once we uh, we flew up to um, Cincinnati and played at Taft Auditorium in Cincinnati, opening for BB King. Wow. And the sad thing was we didn't stay for BB set. Like we did our set and then we went back and we were like loading the gear and I look over and BB comes outside and he's talking to Albert and the two of them are standing there talking to each other. Now I had met BB a year before I got the gig with Albert. BB came through town uh, for the blues award show and then came to a jam session afterward at the new Daisy theater. <clears throat> and, um, he brought his drummer with him, who was so drunk, he was passing out at the drum kit on stage. And I had the uh, I had the sound guy go up and tap him on the shoulder between songs and point to me in the crowd, like standing on the side of the stage. And had the guy. I remember the guy's name was Caleb. And I was like, I was like, go tell that drummer that that I that I that I can play drums. If, if he's he needs to take a nap. <laughs> <laughs> And uh, it was like 1230 at night and at this jam session and there was a bunch of people in there. And uh, sure enough, man, the drummer looked over at me and he nodded and like held up the stick like, come on. 
And I jumped up on stage. He handed me the sticks. I sat down and played, and we got you know sixteen bars into the into the tune. And, and uh, all of a sudden, BB was sitting in his chair in front of me. He turned around and looked at me, saw me sitting back there because he heard the beat change, you know. And uh, I guess he liked it because he got a big smile on his face. And uh, we played through three or four tunes, and then and then that was it. And then he he called me over after. Uh, afterward and shook my hand and, and asked me for my phone number. Wow. So fast forward a year and I'm in Albert King's band. And I, th- I think BB's drummer must've got his shit together after that because, um, I never got the call mm-hmm. and that guy played with that guy. Caleb played with BB right up, right up into the end. So I, you know, I had heard that that guy had a serious drug and alcohol addiction for years playing with BB. But uh, BB kept him in the band because you know those guys were really loyal to each other back then. Um, but anyway, a year later, I was playing with Albert, and we opened for BB. And then after the gig, they were out, out outside talking, and uh, and and Albert, I guess, was telling him about his new drummer, and uh, he called me over to meet BB, not knowing that I already had met BB and played with him. You know, he's. He's just like, George, come over here, or drummer, come on. over here. <laughs> yeah. And I, and I walk over, and I was like, yes, sir. And he's, he's like, hi, I'd like you to meet Mr. B.B. Mr. King. And B.B. took one look at me, and we, we were shaking hands, and he goes, I remember you. I still have your phone number. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> and then I think I did uh, did a handful of more dates with him. We opened for uh, the nicest thing he ever said to me. We opened for... Paul Perkins and Waylon Jennings one time at a festival in Fort Myers, Florida. And after that gig, we got back on the on the in the van and we're driving back to the airport because he wanted to fly back home. I found out later on that the reason he never wanted to stick around after these shows was because he had a real bad gambling job. And he wanted to get down to the casinos in Juneau, Mississippi, and spend all of his gig money that he had just made. You know, he's walking down to the casino with ten thousand dollars, twenty thousand dollars, or something. He's going to go play blackjack until six in the morning and lose it all. Uh, apparently, he was like that. He was just terrible with, at cards, but he was addicted. You know, and you know how those guys are when they're addicted, they just keep going, keep going, keep going. Doesn't matter how much money they lose, but yeah. So anyway, we, we, we finished the gig um in in Florida and we got back on the on the in the van and we were driving. I remember I was in the very back of the bus. Meanwhile, I mean mind you, I'm nineteen. I'm I'm the only white guy. All these guys are like older black guys, veterans that had been in Al Green's band and Bobby Blue Bland's band and Willie Mitchell and stuff. And they were like hardened, seasoned road dogs. And I was just like this new young kid with a punk rock haircut, right? (laughs) Albert's sitting up in the passenger seat and he leaks over his shoulder and he goes, leans over his shoulder and he goes, drop up. And 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 uh, I remember he was real quiet on the bus, and I said, I said, I said yes, sir. And he said, good job, son. <laughs> <laughs> and strangely enough, that is the uh, that gig that night is the object. I'll text it over to you. That that gig is the only is the only photograph, the only photographic proof of my uh, my tenure 
my three and a half week tenure in Albert King's band. And uh, did this, you'll 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 get a kick out of this. Uh, we got back from that gig in Florida, and uh, to the uh, hubby uh, Archie Archie Turner Mitchell asked me. He said, uh, "Do you have your Do you have your passport?" We said, "Yeah." He goes, "Ron Wood from the Rolling Stones called Albert on the phone last night." and invited the entire band to Paris to back him up for two weeks at a gallery where he's showing his artwork. I was like, wait, Ron Wood, guitarist of the Rolling Stones, is bringing Albert King's whole band to Paris. He goes, yes, for two weeks. And he's got, he's got gallery that's going to show like like a whole gallery full of watercolors that he's painted and uh for two weeks and we're going to back him up and be his be ron wood's backing band in paris for two weeks albert king and ron wood wow <laughs> so a year earlier i had i had been in nice france with my gospel choir from overton high school that you mentioned we had uh, we were there for two weeks performing for the French Mardi Gras, so I had a passport. I was ready to go, and when they told me we were going to Paris for two weeks, can you imagine? I was nineteen years old. I would have just gone crazy. <laughs> no doubt. So my, my I found out that news, and then like you know, a couple of days later, my mother called me on the phone and said she wanted to come down to. Peabody Alley before the gig and say hello to Albert because she loved his music and she wanted to meet him and thank him for employing me in his in his band. And so I asked him, you know, uh, Mr. King, my mom would really like to meet you and uh, she's going to come to the club tonight before uh, before the gig. Say hello, you know, would you like to would you like to meet my mom? Oh, I'd love to meet your mother. And all of a sudden, his, his whole demeanor changed. He was like, "Oh, I'd love to meet your mother. That sounds good. Give me a because he lived at the he lived at the hotel. He lived at the Peabody. He's like, call me when your mom gets here, and and, uh, and I'll come I'll come downstairs. I'll meet your mom. And I was like, wow, okay, great. So of course, you know, my mom his gig was at seven. My mom showed up at six, and. uh <clears throat> You know what's so funny is like this was this was nineteen eighty seven, and as I'm talking to you about this, I'm trying to remember how my mom got a hold of me to tell me that she was in the hotel because I mean this is way before cell phones. I don't even I can't even remember a time before cell phones hardly. But anyway, my mom got a hold of me somehow and and told me that she was in the hotel lobby. And uh, somebody got a message to me or something. Hey, your mom is here. So I go to the lobby of the hotel, and there's my mom. She's got she's got her husband, her second husband, Andy, at the time, and then and then their two kids. And uh, <clears throat> I was like, "Oh, hey, mom!" I called up to Albert's room and said, "I said my mom's down in the lobby with her family, and she she wants to meet you." So he came right downstairs, Barry, and. Sure 
shook my mom's hand. She was crying. She was like, it's so nice to meet you. And thank you so much for giving my son this, this wonderful opportunity to play in your band. You know, he loves your music. We love you. You know, love you so much. And then he looks at me and then looks at my mom and says, oh, George is doing such a fucking job. <laughs> <laughs> And that, that story would be funnier if I had preempted it with all of the curse words that Albert yelled at me on stage for the three and a half weeks before that moment he met my mom, because it was every every derogatory word you could think to call somebody, he would call me on stage, you know, and he, 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 was, he hated me. Really? Hated me. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> like I said, I was the fifth drummer he had in two months, so I think he just, you know, I think it was a, like a prerequisite to the gig. He's like, you know, are you are you are you good at getting yelled at? Well, cool, you got the gig. <laughs> you know, <clears throat> I guess I was good at getting yelled at because you know he called me an mf for you know every single night for three and a half weeks. Horrible, horrible, horrible man. Uh, a couple of my friends had been in his band before too, and and. Uh, uh, after me, and we all shared stories about you know our time with Albert King and how great and awful it was. Well, what's what's <laughs> he yelling at you about? So, have you ever listened to the original version of uh, "Born Under a Bad Sign"? I think so. It's it's Al Jackson Jr. Mm-hmm. Basically, the the MGs mm-hmm. playing right, and and Al Jackson's playing drums. Check out how. Al Jackson is playing that beat. It's okay. basically a sixteen or it's an eighth note rock beat. His right hand is playing eighth notes on the hi hat. Right. Well, fast forward to that was late nineteen sixties or early nineteen seventies. So fast forward to nineteen eighty seven. 20 years later, Albert wants 16th notes on the hi-hat. And that beat went from boom, 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 to boom, 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 He wanted really fast 16th notes on the hi-hat. Or Yep. And I couldn't play, I couldn't play 16th notes with one hand at that tempo when I was 19 for very long before I would, you know, I would tuck her out. I'd get tired quickly. And then I'd start playing eight notes. And the minute it went from 16th <laughs> notes to eight notes on the hi hat, he would hear it. He would turn around and go, 16th, motherfucker! <laughs> oh, my God. Oh, my- <laughs> are you I forgot peeing? to ask you if I could cuss on the on the show. That's I'm sure okay. I've already dropped a couple of f bombs. Are you are you uh, peeing down your leg at that point? Like how how? No, what? but you know, I mean, you know, my dad used to yell at me. You know, I come from a military family. You know, my dad was a sergeant in the helicopter sergeant in, in Vietnam, and he used to yell at us. And he was he was pretty pretty physical too. Uh, so I was I was kind of used to it. You know, my dad used to yell at me on stage and stuff. So. Um, so <laughs> he used to come, you know, MF every night, man. And, um, 
so here we are. He, we're in the lobby of the hotel, and I've been playing with him for almost a month. And and uh, and I'm thinking he hates my guts and everything, but he's still taking me. He's still keeping me in his band. He's taking me to Paris. You know, I'm really excited. He's shaking my mom's hand, and he tells her, "Oh, George has been doing such a fine job." Well, that was shocking because not only is he telling her that I was doing a fine job, but he actually used my first name, which I hadn't heard him say before. And I was like, wow, okay. You know, maybe he's not such a bad guy after all. Right? So, anyway, he tells my mom, kisses her on the hand. He says, you know, we got to go and play this show. Mrs. Rosa, it's really nice to meet you. And uh, they say goodbye, and they walk away. Albert turns and puts his arm around me, and we start walking back to the gig in Peabody Alley. Now, if you can imagine, I'm five, well. I guess I'm I'm five eleven now. When I was nineteen, I might not have been five eleven. I might have been like five eight, five nine. I think I grew a little bit. He put his arm around me. He's six foot five, smoking a pipe. He's like a giant, you know, and he's got this big giant paw around me and like a bear. And we're walking back to the, walking back to the gig and he's real quiet. And I remember he's wearing, uh, 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 I remember he's, he's always, you know, where he wore these suits, you know, without the suit jacket. So he's got suit pants on, a white, you know, long sleeve shirt and then a brown vest and his big gold chain that had a G on it. The G stood for Godfather. And he had sunglasses on, diamond-crested sunglasses, and a big giant fedora, smoking a pipe, right? And he's very, very dark skin, and very deep voice, and very angry looking like he would just kick your ass for looking at him the wrong way. And he just had this presence, right? Very strong presence. And we're walking, he's got his arm around me, and I'm, I'm scared to death, but I'm trying to be cool. And he goes... So you're not, you know, you're not going to Europe with us, don't you? <laughs> oh my god! Wow! And I said, uh, no, Mr. King, I, I didn't know that. He goes, well, you're not. And as a matter of fact, tonight is your last night. So play oh good, son. Oh my, <laughs> oh my god! And the only redeeming thing from that was when we walked back into the club. He, you know, he went back up to his hotel room to go get his guitar and stuff. I had to go on stage and get ready to play because you know it was like right before the gig, literally like minutes before the gig. He drops his bomb on me after meeting my mom and all that whole story. <laughs> So I walked back into the club, and the sound guy, Mark, was kind of, had kind of become a buddy of mine. When I came back in with my head down like that, Mark had already seen Albert fire four dudes or whatever before me, so he knew that look. <laughs> he goes, hey, man, what's the matter with you? Did he just fire you? <laughs> that son of a bitch. <laughs> He goes, well, check this out, George. And he's a sound guy. He goes, you know how you know how Albert doesn't like to hear bass drum in his monitor? Well, look at this. And I, and I was standing right next to him, right behind the soundboard. He turned up the bass as loud as it would go in, in Albert's monitor. So for the whole entire gig, Albert was just yelling and freaking out. He didn't know what was going on because, you know, the bass drum was just like, 
you know, <laughs> super loud in his monitors. You know, and the monitors are facing up at him. You know, on on stage in front of him, and he had like at least two of them in front of him. So, so Mark really cranked it up. So he was he was, he was really angry. <laughs> but the whole the whole time I was playing, there was a guy sitting in the crowd off to the side of the stage, staring at me. White dude. I remember he was kind of dark skinned. He had he had uh, he looked like he might have been like Indian or something. He had long, straight black hair. <clears throat> and he was just staring at me like kind of angrily. And Rube stood to my left, like right on my high outside. And he was laughing for the entire gig. And at one point he leans over, he goes, uh, he goes, Hey motherfucker. I'm <laughs> he's like, what? He's like, you see that motherfucker sitting over there staring at you? I go, yeah, he's been staring at me all night. He goes, you see that motherfucker? Is? And I was like, no, who is it? He goes, that's your motherfucking replacement. <laughs> <laughs> Albert fired me and then made me play another gig, right? One last gig. And then had the guy that was going to replace me in the crowd watching me play. Oh, man. You can't make this stuff up. I promise. Oh, you poor kid. I think it makes you a stronger person to go through things like that when you're younger. You know, because it, it just sort of prepares you for all the assholes that you're going to be yes. in the entertainment industry later on. So it's not as big of a surprise, you know. So when I years later, when I meet somebody like Chris Robinson yelling, calling me a motherfucker <laughs> on stage, you know, I just look at him and go, "Hey, man, Albert mm. King called me that like you know twenty years ago, buddy." So <laughs> he's a way better guitar player than you are. <laughs> <laughs> so you mentioned earlier the city champs. Which oh, yeah. which happens to be uh, the bumper music it, since the beginning of this podcast in August of 2018, the title track from the Safe Cracker uh, wow. has been the the intro and the outro music, and I have had a, no, a large number of people. Hey man, my, my favorite is when they say, "Is that your band?" And <laughs> I just have to laugh. I wish, um, but quite a few people are impressed with with the with the bumper music, and so um, that's a good segue into the new album that just came out uh, this month. Y'all's third album. It's an organ trio out of Memphis, by the way. Luna sixty eight, which I just uh, listened to it for the probably the third time uh, earlier today. Great stuff wow. and. Wow, um, thank you, man. Yeah, it, I, it's just such a it's such an accessible sound. Um, I think anybody can listen to it, uh, it and I'm, including my wife and people I've been around. It's, it seems like just a, a, a style of music that that is really uh, appeals to everybody. Man, it, uh, thank you, thank you for saying all that stuff, Larry. It definitely has had uh, such a wide appeal um you know we're not really doing anything new i mean the the uh, instrumental um so it's an instrumental band you know we don't have any vocals um but that tradition you know goes i mean goes back to you know goes goes back to, to the very beginning of the music you know there's i mean there's a lot of really really early music that didn't that was just instrumental that didn't have any vocals at all um, but you know our band is kind of following in the footsteps of the of the Memphis instrumental 
bands. Um, you know, the Bill Black Combo, for example. You know, Bill Black Combo were the were the guys that 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 that, uh, that backed up Elvis. And um, you know, they were they were an instrumental group before uh, before before they backed up Elvis. And, you know, of course, Booker T and the G's. You know, everybody knows about you know Green Onions. And uh, the Marquis was another amazing instrumental group from Memphis. So when I came back to, um, I've, I've left here twice, actually. I left my first time was in 90, 91. I left, moved out to California, and then uh, and then I came back in 06. And then I left again in, in 2011 to play with, play with CRB. Um, I came back after that in uh, the 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 well, I put the chance together in in 2006, and uh, and uh, and then and then left in 2011 to go play the CRB, and then I came back to Memphis in, in 2016, and uh, immediately uh, started playing with those guys again. And and it was about that time that we started uh, messed around uh, with uh, ideas for for a third record, but we didn't have you know we didn't we didn't know what how that was going to take take form you know. So yeah, we really, we weren't really sure uh, how long it would take or what you know what form it was going to take, but we were really happy with the with how it turned out. So, the last year, of course, has been uh, very jolting for musicians everywhere, and and um, not just musicians, but the people who, you know, are all dependent on the industry. What yeah, has it? Man. How has it? How has it affected you? I know you're you're a studio musician as well, and and you get. Uh, a, a good number of opportunities in that realm. Um, what, what's the what's the pandemic life, I guess, for lack of a better word, been like for you? Uh, well, it's affected me pretty pretty heavily. Um, <clears throat> I was, like you said, um, touring, uh, making my living uh, as a touring musician. I've been working with this uh, singer from New York for the past few years, named Morgan James. Um, who's a phenomenal vocalist. Um, we, uh, we, we toured all over the United States and all over Europe and, um, I made a record with her in 2019 and, uh, in 2020, we were just at the very beginning of our, our world domination tour. Uh (laughs) And, uh, when, uh, when the pandemic hit, all of our gigs, uh, were canceled. You know, we had a uh, entire Asian tour that was canceled. Believe it or not, um, wow. in March, in March we were doing this crazy three week tour, uh, which uh, included Japan, China, Hawaii, uh, and then Northern California. And uh, yeah, it all came to a screeching halt. And I had to figure out how I was going to keep. Uh, <clears throat> keep making a living as, as a musician and uh, I couldn't do it I had to get a day job and uh, I got a couple of grants from Music Cares to help me out um, 
there's a there's a there's a company here called Music Export Memphis that was uh, offering grants to uh, musicians and artists who had their income taken. Uh, I got I got two of those. Uh, I started my Patreon page um, last year, which has been really wonderful, uh, and I've got tons of videos and and uh, stories and. Um, <clears throat> lessons and um I do these group hangs with the subscribers uh once a month, you know, where we just go on the Zoom call with each other and and uh meet and ask questions and you know, like you've been on a few of those uh as one of my patrons, which I've left. And uh uh I put together this little home recording uh, studio. Started working on that. And in between all that and teaching on the weekends, uh, Patreon, and then working this day job, um, you know, I've been able to, you know, uh, keep the roof over my head, keep the lights on, as they say. Um, but, you know, what's funny, Larry, is I quit my job yesterday, and I, it was it was a lot of things leading up to it, but I've been really miserable at this job, and I'm like, you know what? I don't want to be at this job anymore. I, I want to actually be, you know, I don't want to be working in this factory. I actually want to be uh, doing what I've been doing my whole life and just sitting behind a drum set in whatever capacity that means, you know. And uh, when you when you called and you were like, hey, man, I want to have you on my podcast, I had already quit my job. <clears throat> when I got that email from you, I had just quit my job and I just put it out there into the universe, you know, again, this is going to sound really hippie, but you know, when you want something in your life, if you verbalize it, you know, you can manifest what you want in your own life, you know? And I was like, I want to be playing drums, you know, and whether it's getting more subscribers to my Patreon page where, you know, I'm doing lessons and doing videos and things like that, or getting more session work, um, I'm, I, I have been getting a good amount of, of people sending me their songs. That's another thing that, that, that I had to figure out how to do, is how to record myself from my own home, mm-hmm. uh, which required getting some gear. But it's not like you think. Uh, the way that... The way that... Uh, uh, the way that it is these days, like, you don't have to spend you know, a hundred thousand dollars to put a home studio together. You can spend thousand dollars mm-hmm. and have everything you need. A computer, a nice little uh, digital audio workstation and some software and, and that's all you need. You know? And if you're a good enough musician where you can, you know, play your instrument really well, then uh People can email you songs and you know, whatever instrument they need, you know, that you play, you can put it on there. So people send me their songs that need drums. I play drums pretty well. Uh, I got some decent microphones. Uh, my little drum room is, is set up nice. Um, Barksdale. So putting, Barksdale joining the podcast. Um, he's actually, that's actually, I'm out walking him right now and that's a neighbor's dog barking at him. (laughs) Yeah. He might bark here in a second, but, uh, you know, it's funny. I named him Barksdale because there's a, there's a street here named Barksdale (laughs) and I think it's named after, uh, maybe one of the, one of the early, uh, 
one of the early founding fathers of Memphis or something. I don't know because there's like there's a street here, there's a restaurant named Barksdale. The, the name Barksdale is popular around here. But when I first moved back in 2016, my girlfriend at the time uh, saw the street name Barksdale. She started laughing. I said, "What's so funny?" She said, Barksdale, that's a great name for a dog. We should get a dog and name him Barksdale. I was like, all right, we have to do that now. That's great. I'm sorry I'm talking so much, man. I'm so excited to be on your podcast. That's I just like blab them out. That's the point of the podcast is you talking and <laughs> me and me listening. Um, <laughs> the, the Patreon thing, I guess if somebody wanted to, Wanted to join or contribute? Is this George Slupik Patreon? Is is that pretty, pretty as easy as that to find it? Uh, it's Patreon dot com slash George Slupik. Okay. Yeah. Okay. You know, it's a. It hit me. Uh, I think I had known you had started uh, the Patreon page. Maybe several months had gone by, and then I'm thinking, wait a minute, like the the novelty. Of being able to, you know, not you know, whoever it is, what, what if, if you love music, and you you know are really, uh, really interested in certain musicians or 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 inspired by them, during normal times, you would not be able to have an audience with them uh, on a regular basis, you know, and to take a lesson from them on a regular basis when they're a touring musician would cost a lot of money, and so. It just hit me. I just had a revelation. I'm like, I'm joining this freaking Patreon page because it's not only is it do I get something out of it, but um, but so does you know, so does he. And I don't know. It's 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 a special kind of thing, just in general. And I encourage anybody who uh, whatever type of music they like, whatever musicians they are passionate about, to to look them up too, uh, to try to have a relationship with, with the people you would not, you probably would not be able to have one with, uh, during normal times. I guess it's one of the silver linings of the pandemic. Uh, if, if that makes oh, any sense, man, you know, you said it, man, it's absolutely, it's absolutely wonderful. You know, when you see guys like Michael McDonald, you know, Michael McDonald is on Instagram and I follow him and he'll come on and he'll say, Hey everybody, it's Michael. And I'm going to be doing a live streaming show from my house here in California and you know I'd like everybody to tune in and you know my my Venmo is uh whatever <laughs> you know or you can buy tickets online at this at this site to to watch the show I mean it's funny because we're all in this you know we were all in this thing together I mean I connected you're absolutely right man I mean I connected with a ton of people just in the last year that I probably wouldn't have connected with otherwise, you know, and become friends with, with, with a lot of them, you know, cause like nothing, <laughs> nothing brings everybody, you know, together like a good old quarantine. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, no, it's been, it's been, it's been wonderful for me to have, people like you and, and pretty much everyone that's on my page that has subscribed to my Patreon page, um, uh, has expressed, uh, some of the same 
uh, some of the same beautiful feelings that, that, that you have about it, that, you know, they love my music. They love the things that I do and like, you know, subscribing to my page gives, gives them a good feeling knowing that they're helping support me to continue to do what I do. And, and, you know, and that coupled with, you know, all the donations that I got from people, uh, I put a GoFundMe page up, uh, on Monday night, uh, cause I'm trying to raise some money. You want to talk about broke, trying to raise just a little bit of money to fix this dang computer of mine that's broken down a couple of times. Um, so that I can keep working in my studio. Right. Mm-hmm. And, uh, uh, one of my patrons suggested, oh, why don't you put a GoFundMe page up? You know, and I, man, I, I hate asking people for money. I just hate it. And, uh, but <clears throat> he's like, oh man, give it a shot, man. You, you know, you might like, you might, you might get something out of it. So I was like, okay, well, I'm not going to ask for very much. You know, the repair is going to be like 400 bucks. Eight o'clock, Monday night, this past Monday, I, I, I went on GoFundMe. It took me 10 minutes. I took a picture of my laptop, not even a good picture, just like a picture of my laptop. And I titled it George's Laptop Repair Fund. (laughs) 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 And, uh, you know, uh, 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 my goal was $400, you know, tiny little goal. By 8.30, I had surpassed my goal by, you know, over a hundred dollars. So it was like $550 in there by seven o'clock. There was $800 in there. And by the next morning, Tuesday morning, there was almost a grand. And I was like, well, you know, I've got enough here to, uh, you know, buy like a Mac mini and like, like a, almost a whole new stuff for, for my studio. So I don't even have to worry about my laptop crashing again. I can just get like a, a whole, a whole new thing. So that's when, you know, yesterday I woke up and I saw that and I was like, man, look, people really care about what I do and, uh, I need to keep doing it. And, yeah. uh, it was just the, it was just the fire that I needed lit, uh, to, to, to help me, um, go through with that decision to leave this day job because I think you and I have talked before about how uh, <clears throat> how hard it's been for me to work at this at this place and just the hours too the hours were really bad and it wasn't giving me enough time during the week to to even to even play the drums much more than you know 10 or 15 minutes what's your what's your ideal hours a day to to play and practice oh man you know i actually prefer playing during the day i'm not very good at night <laughs> unless i'm in a, unless i'm in a band and i'm on the road or whatever uh and if, if that's the case then between between eight and ten i'm pretty good uh between seven and nine even p.m but during the day um I'd say, I'd say between noon and like four, you know, that's when, uh, 
That's when it was like the sweet spot. <laughs> so you play in the whole four hours, ideally, or or just no, 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 no. It's just like that's the time slot. You know, yeah. that you said what are the hours that are good for you to play? You know, those are the hours. You know, between those hours. Gotcha. Yeah, I mean, when I'm at home, you know, it's it's usually never more than an hour or so. Mm-hmm. Um, I probably spend more time than that, you know, practicing, you know, on my pra- on my practice pad, but like sitting at the drum set, you know, not more than an hour, mm-hmm. um, unless I'm in the recording studio, and then um, if I'm in the studio, work with Bruce Watson or something, then uh, then I'm going to be. I'm going to be there at 10 o'clock, and by 10, 15, 10, 30, we're going to have drum sounds, and I'm going to be tracking. We'll probably have a couple tunes done by 11 o'clock already. So, speaking of Bruce, we've actually got uh, <clears throat> that, that City Chimps record came out, but um, the guy that produced that, Bruce Watson, um, had a bunch of records come out on his label, um, on his two side labels actually. So he's the owner of Fat Possum Records in uh, Oxford, Mississippi. But in Memphis he owns two subsidiaries. One's called Big Legal Mess, which the City Chance record is on. But then he's got a gospel label called Bible and Tire. And uh their their motto is retread your soul. Mm. <laughs> That's cool. And uh yeah, yeah, yeah. It's really cool. And uh I think Ken Tucker did a little piece on uh, on Fresh Air yesterday on NPR. Came out about uh, this artist thing, uh, Elizabeth King. There's a brand new record coming out this week. Actually, I think Thursday, her record's coming out. Um, <clears throat> amazing, amazing, beautiful gospel singer. She's 77 years old, and uh, she's had an incredible life. There, and uh, the music is very old school, like staple singers style, you know, so like the appeal is, it's like, yeah, you don't even really have to be in the gospel music. When you hear this, you'll, you'll be boogieing immediately. It's really good, really good stuff. Well, George, I have taken way more time uh, from you than than, than I asked for. No, man, no way. I was on this guy's podcast for like two and a half hours one time, and we realized at the end, we were like, hey, we've been talking for <laughs> way too long. <laughs> if anybody is still tuned into this, then they are hardcore. That's right. That's right. <laughs> well, the true uh, believers, as we call them. That's exactly the, the, right. The people that stay for the, for the whole show <laughs> to the very end, call them the true believers. <laughs> the people hanging out outside the bus asking for autographs. Oh man, we used to. I definitely call those people true believers because, like, when you went to a Chris Robinson Brotherhood show, the show was three hours long, right? So we played two sets with usually about a twenty or thirty minute intermission, and uh, some of those tunes were like fourteen minutes long, and the tempo was like you know eighty four BPM, like slow (laughs) and you're at a concert and you're drinking with your buddies maybe you're doing some drugs who knows you know it was all kinds of drugs and alcohol going on at those those shows but like if you want to come and like dance and have a really good time and you get to you get to the you get to the theater or whatever and like the band starts out with these really slow jams and keeps that going for three hours if you hang out 
for that till the very end. You are a true believer. (laughs) 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 So I would say to all those out there who's who's ever listening to this very end, Jerry, you are a true believer because... Larry, you have, I have got the gift of gab, for sure. Perfect for a podcast. Um, George, it's been a pleasure, and uh, thoroughly uh, appreciate what you, your, your art and, uh, and, and our relationship that we've had the last few months. And uh, Man, absolutely, man. You're one of my favorite people in the world now, and I really am very... Very grateful to know you, and I really appreciate you having me on, man. Thank you so much. All right. Thanks to George Sluffick there. Great conversation, some awesome stories and perspective from life on the road. As only a lifetime professional musician uh, can share. Thanks to our sponsors for making this podcast possible, their loyal support. Most of all, thanks to all of you for hitting play on this once every week. Really appreciate that. We're going to close with another song. The one, the one that is currently playing is off of the City Champs' new album, Luna 68. This song is called Skinny Mike. And we're going to transition and play another full song in its entirety from that album called Thinking of You. All right, everybody enjoy. Have a great rest of the week. Be safe. Cheers. Cheers.